Thank you, team. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you today. Let's participate in our monthly memory verse this morning. It's a verse for the month of June, and we'll say it together. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 2. And if you're looking for a way this summer to walk in love, just as Christ did, I have some opportunities for you in our children and student ministry. One of them is VBS. You'll notice an insert in your bulletin today. We would love to have your help with VBS ministries this summer. We're very excited about bringing VBS back onto our campus here at CNBC and look forward to ministering to a number of children, uh, both from our congregation and our community. And so one way for you to walk in love this summer would be to serve as a volunteer uh, with our Vacation Bible School ministry. And so we would encourage you to pray about that opportunity and perhaps even take advantage of it. We're continuing this morning through our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are actually nearing the end of Paul's opening remarks in this letter as he was writing to the people of God in Corinth. Paul's ministry among the people certainly was not a ministry that allowed them to be comfortable. They were not able to be complacent or relaxed. Paul has, as we have heard many times in these opening words, challenged the people of God. They were to give up the vision and to unite under the person and work of Jesus. They were to pursue real wisdom, which was to be discovered in a simple and singular message of Christ and Him crucified. The people of God were to boast in their weakness, not giving priority to the eloquence of human words and wisdom, but rather finding their power in the strength of the Lord. Paul has called them in these very opening chapters to give up judging one another's intentions and motivations and purposes or each other's hearts. Rather, as co-heirs and co-laborers, we are to be doing that which God has called us to do, namely, building one another up in love. The way of life that Paul is calling the people of God towards requires sacrifice, it requires humility, a laying down of one's life for one another, and as Paul would later describe, a daily dying to oneself. In the eyes of the unbelieving world, friends, these postures are hard. They're often uncomfortable. Sometimes they're inconvenient. Yet for the church... Living this way is evidence that Jesus' grace and his mercy is at work in our lives. And while Paul was physically present with the people, he was with them for a season to hold them accountable, to walk worthy of the gospel through which they had been saved, he was leaving. And even as he was writing, he had left and was no longer present. And I don't know about you, but for me... It was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Crow. Whenever we would come to school, I went to Mardikville Middle School. If any of you are familiar with Lancaster County, Mardikville Middle School over in Peckway. Whenever I'd walk into school and Mr. Crow was present, a giant smile would come on my face. You know why? Mr. Crow was the substitute. 
And we all know how the substitute teacher is treated. Paul was going away. He had gone away. He had left. And guess what? In his absence, some substitutes had come among the people. And guess what? The people were behaving just as we did and just as some of the children among us still do when the substitute teacher is present. Paul is going to address that matter and a number of others in the text that we're visiting today. How did Paul wish for his words to be received? How did he desire for the faith community in Corinth to relate to him as one of their leaders? Who were they to be imitating while he was gone? What was to be done about the people in their midst who were arrogant and stirring up unrest? And if and when Paul was able to return to the people, what would that return look like for them? These are the questions that Paul is addressing as we close out this portion of the letter today. So you want to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are in the very last verses of chapter 4 today. Verses 14 to 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. And let's pray. Lord, we are thankful today as we gather around your word, this powerful text of scripture that you've given us to study together as a congregation today. We're thankful that you have left us with a perfect example to imitate in the Son, in your Son, Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that you put leaders in the early church who also were able to say, imitate me, live as I live. And still, Lord, today in our lives, you give us leaders whose examples are worth imitating. Father, as we unpack the questions that we will encounter in this text today, we pray that you would help us to grow in our love for you and our love for one another. Might we leave here today motivated to care and minister for the people that you draw into our pathways. And might we give you the glory for the way that you're working our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. This is Paul writing. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? There are examples here worth imitating. 
And Paul says in his text, I do not write these things to make you feel ashamed. Paul's intent in writing is not that the people would receive his words as shaming. Rather, these words are words of caution. Paul is, he's not trying to bad dog the people of God in Corinth. Did you ever go home to a mess that your dog created and you say, bad dog? They usually cower and put their tail between their legs. They're ashamed. This is not Paul's posture. It's not his intent. It's not how he's desiring to treat the people of God in Corinth. He's not expecting them to cower in a corner with their proverbial tails between their legs. No. That kind of life forfeits the power which Paul is soon going to confirm we are to be living by. Here, Paul is clear about the intent of his words. They are words of warning, not words of of shame. As a father, I have found that warning is always more effective in producing desired heart change than guilting or shaming. It's far easier for me as a father to shame my children into being quiet so that I might enjoy a few moments of peace and quiet in my home than to go out and to explore what all of the craziness is about perhaps even warning them of the inherent dangers in their activity, if there is any. And if there isn't any, maybe even participating in the madness that's going on. Far better for me to know, as a father, to know my children intimately, observing the patterns of their behavior, the motivations of their hearts, and the influences on, my, on their minds and looking ahead for them and warning them of the potential dangers of the, that are present on the path that they may be on. And this is what Paul is doing here. He is warning the people of God in Corinth about the end result of their pride. It is dangerous. Their arrogance is harmful to the church. It has caused division. It's led them to live as if they were lacking. It's revealed spiritual immaturity. And even as we soon shall see in the next chapter, it has led the people towards an indifference regarding open and unrepentant sin in their congregation. Paul is warning them of their sin. He's pleading with them as a father would plead with his children Change your ways. There's nothing productive or good that is going to come from this behavior that's in your midst. The patterns and habits and attitudes and behaviors were and today still negatively affecting the testimony of the church in the world in which God has planted us. And their behaviors that are very unbecoming of the bride of Christ. Paul's quest in his writing is to see effective servant leaders focused on building one another up in the faith, sharing the good news of Jesus with those who are not yet in the faith. He's warning them to move forward towards effective ministry as God has planted the Corinthian church in a community that is overwhelmingly unbelieving. Paul had become as a father to them. Look at verse 15. 
For though you have countless guides in Christ, the substitute teachers, the babysitters, the caretakers, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Paul had delivered the gospel to the people of God in Corinth. Many of them had come to a saving knowledge of Christ through his ministry. Through the gospel, Paul had become as a father to them in the faith. The word that's used here for guides is a word very similar to our English word that we use for babysitters. And babysitters, we often treat much like the substitute teachers, if we're honest with ourselves, don't we? I mean, I I remember as a child when mom and dad were going out for dinner and they said the babysitter was coming, I was pretty excited about that. (laughs) Because I knew that the babysitter was going to interpret the instructions of my mom and dad and apply them much differently than my mom and dad did when they were home. As a child, I also knew that I would be able to take a little bit of advantage of their more relaxed interpretations and applications. And while Paul here is not taking anything away from the countless guides that were among the people, what he is doing is he's reminding them and giving them uh, clear instruction of the example of whose priority, or sorry, the priority of whose example they should follow. He says this in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Don't imitate the babysitter. Don't imitate the substitute teacher. Be imitators of me. This is one of the places where Paul gives direct instruction to the church to imitate his style of life and ministry. And church, We live in a world with growing voices and countless guides. The question we may ask is, whose voice are we to be following? Who is the guide that we're supposed to be giving priority and attention to? Every day we are flooded with lifestyle examples and decision-making examples. Examples of people who are quick to speak, slow to listen. Whose example is worth following? Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Church, the voices in our lives that we give the most attention, time, and priority to will often be the voices that have the most influence over our attitudes And our actions. I want to say that again. The voices in our lives that we give the most attention, time, and priority to will often be the voices that have the most influence over our attitudes and our actions. And in a world full of opinions of how one should live, the example that Paul says to follow was his own imitate me. And he has just explained in the chapters before this what that imitation should look like. It is simple. It's sacrificial. It's humble. It's not worried about comparing itself to others. It's 
An example that's committed to love and to peace and to joy. It's, it's an example that's abounding in faith and hope. It's grounded in the truth and the example of Jesus Christ. Rather than being consumed with judgment, it's consumed with being found faithful to the task that God has given. Love of neighbor. Faithful proclamation of the gospel both in word and in deed. Church, the portrait that Paul has painted here is of a children, of a child watching their father and imitating everything he does because they trust him. They are secure in his example and he has proven to be gentle, kind-hearted, and loving. My mother and father have a picture in one of our childhood books. Uh, it's, it's in, I think, my baby book. And my father was on the roof of the house And he was repairing the roof and replacing shingles. And the picture is of me imitating my father. I wanted to be just like him. And Paul has given his children reason to want to imitate his example. He's been thoughtful to prepare and to send to them another who could serve as a powerful Christ-honoring example to them. Look at verse 17. Paul was sending the church his doppelganger. Verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Everywhere in every church. This is so important because what Paul is calling the people of God in Corinth to and Vicariously, what he's calling us to is some pretty radical and countercultural ways of living. And we are going to want to see, the people of God are going to want to see that in the muck and mire of daily life, when the rubber hits the road and the things get really, really tough, does this lifestyle, does this way of living really work? Is it effective? Not only did Paul show himself through his own life that this way of living worked, but he cared enough that he'd also send Timothy, someone younger, who could also encourage him to see that this way of life and this way of thinking was not only effective for daily living, but was also so hope-filled and so life-giving. Friends, it's been said before, but it's worth repeating. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, we should be the most joy-filled, hope-filled people in our spaces. We have unlimited number of reasons to walk with great confidence and great hope because of Jesus, His work, and His person. A safe and effective way to live as a minister servant, or steward of Jesus was to imitate the examples of Paul and Timothy because they were imitating the way of Christ. And friends, we have to remember that when we read these letters, these were not just principles or instructions or ways of life that were reserved for the people of God in Corinth. They're for all of the church. And Paul reminds the people that he is teaching the same things in every other congregation. In other words, you're not the only people I'm calling to live this way. I'm sharing this message 
with everyone. Remember how he began his letter. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He said, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. And now he's instructing the people of God in Corinth and us that all those in every place are receiving the same words of instruction. Every church, everywhere. There is sameness and there is consistency to Paul's message. It was a common message, but it was given to a called out, set apart people. And Paul knew that applying this message would prove to be difficult. Church, we've said this before, but it's true. Living as aliens and sojourners in this world is not an easy task. And Paul knew that after he left, the people would be susceptible to wolves challenging his words and intentions and motivations. And indeed, this is exactly what would happen. If the people had another example to look towards, it, perhaps in Paul it could help them stand against the arrogant cynics and the naysayers who were rising up among them, challenging Paul's teachings and questioning Paul's absence. And while Paul understood that these people may hold temporary influence over the church, he gives us an example in the text of how we might imitate him in dealing with those in our midst who are arrogant. Look at verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Throughout his ministry, Paul's confidence, it's very interesting, in all of his letters you can go through, and you, Paul exudes this confidence, and we might ask, where does this come from? Here in this letter to actually call out arrogant people among the church and to really push under their power and influence. Where does this confidence come from? I think we see it in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, where Paul says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And I think it's very interesting here that we notice how Paul describes the pattern of arrogant behavior that was among the people. What were they going to do? What were the arrogant people in Corinth doing? What was the pattern of their behavior? They were creating doubt. That's what they were doing. They were creating doubt in Paul's leadership. They were creating doubt that Paul would not do or live or behave the way that he said he would. They were stirring dissension, provoking fear, giving cause for concern about Paul's motivations and intentions. And friends, this is still happening in churches all over our world today. Arrogance is still present in the church today. It's not an issue that Paul solved. It's an issue that still plagues the church 
today. And Paul's response to this arrogance is striking. He's going to lean wholly on God's power to overcome the arrogance of men. He doesn't go to eloquent speech. He doesn't go to powerful rhetoric. He begins with his own heart's intent. Take a look at verse 19. What does he say? But I will come to you soon. It was Paul's full intention to return again, but he's not going to lean on his own power to accomplish or bring about his return. Look how he couches it at the end of verse 19. If the Lord wills. Paul's return would be according to the Lord's will, not his own. He always directed the people back to God's power. For God's power, God's ways, and God's will, church, they will always prevail over the power and the words of men. God's ways are stronger. God's ways are higher. God's ways are better. They're better. And look at what Paul assures that he's going to find out when he returns. It's at the end of verse 19. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. You see, Paul recognizes something. It's something that as a church, friends, we can recognize. Even when there's arrogance, even when there's pride and puffiness in our own congregations. The power and arrogance of men is limited and temporary in its effect and nature. There is a greater power that is moving and motivating and inspiring Paul. And it's not related to man's applause, nor is it related to him securing crowns and kingdoms and empires here on earth. It's a power that flows from the words and the lifestyle of a minister whose mind is set on, whose heart has been conditioned for, and whose soul is firmly anchored in the kingdom of God. Paul has structured and executed his life and ministry according to the principles of the kingdom. And church, this allowed him to live with great composure, even under scrutiny, even under external pressure and constant criticism from the very people he was called to serve and lay down his life for. Paul could live with such confidence in the face of these foaming mouths because it was not his own power that he was living by. And church, that is huge. That is the biggest thing for us. We cannot do this on our own strength and our own effort. We need Jesus. There is a kingdom whose power stretches far beyond, infinitely beyond, the words of the proud And the arrogant, look at verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Power. Church, we don't have time to dive into a full biblical breakdown of the kingdom of God this morning. It's a magnificent concept, by the way, if you'd like to do some personal study. But when we speak of the kingdom of God, we're talking about a here but not yet reality. This means that though the kingdom has been inaugurated by Christ, the fullness of that kingdom is not yet fully experienced or realized here on earth. Jesus says what? Seek ye first, what? 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the kingdom of God, or at least the ideals of that kingdom, can be sought after and lived out in some form today here on earth. One example of this is found after Jesus' crucifixion. You'll remember this. I believe we talked about it at Easter service this year. There's a man who came to Pilate who was asking for the body of Jesus. His name was Joseph of Arimathea, and the Bible describes him what? As a man who was looking for the kingdom. Joseph stood out against the tide of his own government's execution. His actions were also going against the popular verdict of his own people, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. But there was a greater power at work in these humble yet eternally significant works after Jesus' death. Paul says this regarding the kingdom in Romans chapter 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Church, we are made righteous by Jesus. We experience peace because God dwells richly within us. And we exude joy because it is produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And though we can't physically see this kingdom, because of the person and work of Jesus, we can still participate in its ideals today. Not by our own strength, not by our own power, but by God's strength and God's power and the power of Jesus at work within us, the power of his Holy Spirit. Church, the true power of the kingdom is found in the strength of the king who owns the kingdom and rules our hearts and transforms our minds. We live by his strength, not ours. And his strength is more than enough to conquer, stand against, or oppose any who would stand against the church. The true power that's available to every believer is not found in arrogance. Rather, it's a power that's fueled by God's grace. It's found in the posture by which Paul came to his people. It's a posture which we ourselves can also assume. And if we forget what it looks like, let's remind ourselves. Flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just one or two pages. Flip back. Let's remind ourselves what this posture of power looked like. It's so important. We can imitate Paul. We can live like this today, church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the power that's associated with this kingdom that Paul is talking about. Pastor and author David Platt said this, quote, The kingdom of God does not consist in all of these words, all of these debates that we've seen in the Corinthian church, all of this division but in the power of God through His Spirit and His Word and His Gospel, the power 
of Christ crucified. End quote. Friends, church, how can we contribute to the health and growth and stability and unity of our local congregations? One of the greatest ways is to follow the example of Paul in his posture, in his actions, in his words. Serving one another, building one another up, stewarding and sharing the mysteries of God with one another. The kingdom of God consists in power, so we gather as kingdom citizens and we pray together as people wholly dependent on our King. We sing together. We sang today beautifully. Thank you, team. But we sing together. We sing as a people thankful to the King, eager to give Him glory. We serve together. We talked about serving in VBS. There are many other ways to serve here at CNBC. I think there's a list of 21 out there somewhere. We serve together, stirring one another up towards love and good works because we love working for the King. We share about the goodness of the King with those who do not yet know Him. There is a world out there that is not and has no idea about this kingdom, and we are faithful to share with them about this good, kind, gracious King. Church, there are power. There is a power in these things. A power that is boundless because it's the work of God within us. And as believers, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we want to find ourselves consumed with glorifying the King through living out the Great Commission and applying the Great Command. That should be the greatest endeavor and mission of our lives. And when we're found in these things, this is what Paul is getting to, when we are found in these things, there is little room for arrogance and there is little room for talk that leads to doubt, division, or strife. We've been given a commission We've been given a command. And Paul's desire is to return to his people. And when he did return, the attitudes and the behaviors of the people would largely determine his tone and posture. Let me ask you this question. Growing up in your home, I wonder if you ever heard a line similar to this. Wait till your father gets home. I heard that a lot growing up. (laughs) I don't think it was typically for good things that I heard that. Perhaps the same was for you. Sometimes we say that to remind our children of the one who's coming and how he might be coming. Paul was going to come back. He wanted to come back. But look at what he says. Verse 21. What do you wish? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now here's where we sometimes get this verse wrong. Sometimes we look at this verse and we think Paul could come back one way in anger or he could come back one way in love. I don't think that could be any further from the truth. Because we know this, discipline is a form of love, is it not? Amen? 
We don't discipline our children out of wrath. We discipline our children out of love. So Paul was returning. He was coming back. And what we need to understand is this. Either way, Paul was coming in love. He was coming back. If he was the Lord willed, he was coming back. It was going to be in love. However, the way he applied this love within the faith community in Corinth could be characterized in one of two ways. Could it not? The rod connotates discipline. Shape up. We talk about getting a whooping in our home. Ever hear about that? (laughs) I got plenty of those growing up. Shape up. I could come back with the rod of discipline. Certainly, there were some behaviors among the people that required a disciplined approach to correcting. If I acted up or misbehaved when the babysitter was at home, guess what? It wasn't good for me. And if they kept up this behavior and kept this division and strife and all this divisiveness going, if they kept this up, the arrogance and the pride, Paul's going to come back with a rod. With the corporate church in view, Paul has already addressed some of these behaviors. Jealousy, envy, strife, division, pride. Next chapter, church. I think there's a warning in your note guide this week, maybe at the end. Next chapter, he is going to sharpen his focus on individual reports. In chapter 5, we're going to find Paul among the people leading by love, but perhaps more so with a rod than with gentleness. But it's still in love. Still in love. In other places throughout the same letter, we're going to find Paul with a posture and a tone of gentleness and meekness. Here's the reality, church. A good minister will always lead with love, but will know and discern how best to apply that love to the people they are serving. Know what the people you serve are in need of and lead with that kind of love. And Paul would come to the people, Lord willing, and he would apply the exact type of love that their actions and their attitudes demanded. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? Well, God has given us a perfect example in the person of Jesus. He has given us examples like the apostles, examples that are worth imitating. The testimony of their lives speak to a true power, a power that is at work within each and every one of us. And when we speak truth and live rightly, we direct people to the source of that power, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to whom we owe all things. So how do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as a church in this overwhelmingly unbelieving world? This is the question that Paul is unpacking throughout his letter. Imitating Christ and leading with love, we put off arrogance, living by the infinite power of God that's provided to the faithful citizens of His kingdom.